Hi, welcome to More Orthodoxy. This is a channel for Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today, I'm joined by J Dr. J.P. Moreland. Dr. J.P. is the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology in Bayola University in Lamarada, California, if I'm pronouncing that right. He's earned four degrees in chemistry, theology, an MA in philosophy, and PhD also in philosophy. He's planted three churches, spoken and debated in hundreds of college campuses around the USA and served the Campus Crusade for Christ for 10 years. For eight years, he also served as a bioethicist. He's married to Hope and his two daughters and several grandchildren. They attend a vineyard Anaheim church and are deeply committed to the body of believers there. Is that all right, Jeffy? Sounds great. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. So uh, basically, I would love to start with some key events in your life. If you could tell us about some of your um, kind of most formative moments that have made you the man that you are. Well, I was raised in a, a liberal Methodist church and uh, Jesus was primarily presented as a kind of a mid-American white uh, conservative uh, good person. And uh, I went to college uh, to major in chemistry, and I believed there was a God, but it, I, I just didn't have time for it and until my junior year, where I started asking questions about what this was all about. And uh, about that time, some people with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ uh, came by where I lived and gave a talk to about 80 young men and um i was really impressed they made a case for the historical reliability of the new testament so i began the uh, staff workers and for about a month six weeks i read everything i could get my hands on and became convinced that this was really likely to be true and so I gave my life to Christ in November of 1968, and uh, it stuck. I just, I've never turned back, and it's the greatest decision I ever made. Uh, I, I, you know, apart from marriage and, and, and my children and so on, grandchildren, I guess uh, uh, the second thing would be that uh, I began to do campus evangelism. And of course, uh, I was leading people to Christ. I was getting asked all kinds of questions I didn't know the answers to. And uh, people I was winning to the Lord were also getting uh, crucified for <laughs> their faith. And I, I just wanted to help. So I began to realize that the discipline of philosophy, which I thought was psychology misspelled, I didn't know anything about it. I was a physical chemistry major. Um, it was a really crucial area of study. So to make a long story short, I ended up going in uh, to graduate school in, in, in theology and then uh, my MA in terminal degree in philosophy. And I have really, uh, I've been a professor for 35 years and really enjoyed it. I guess the third thing would be that uh, due to nervous breakdown that I had in 2003, I have a genetic predisposition to anxiety from my mom's side of the family. And I had a stress, unbelievably stressful year. Well, I began uh, to, uh, when I've written about this in my in a book, Finding Quiet, that, that might be helpful to people who suffer from this. But um, I began to 
to hear about credible supernatural events uh, that were happening all over the world. And this was sort of new to me. Uh, so I started going to a vineyard church and um, I began to see things that I had never seen before. We had a person who's, who was 80% uh, blind who was instantly healed when a group of people laid hands on him. And one of the team members was a, a, an optometrist assistant. So, I mean, there's, I know these people and it was incredible and, and other things. And, and so uh, I just began to add kind of an overtly supernatural dimension to my own Christian life. And I'm actually writing a book on that now, but uh, so those would be, Kind of my story, wanting to combine my heart and a, a rigorous uh, 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 intellectual life, and then also uh, an embracing of the of signs and wonders. And and I uh, don't know why I have to choose. I want. I'd like to have all three if I can. So that's pretty much who I am. Beautiful. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's something that I think comes across brilliantly in your work and uh, some of the books that we'll discuss later on. So. Um, Aside from those events, then, I was wondering about some of your key influences. Is there any person or number of persons who've been particularly inspirational or influential for you? Boy, uh, I, I, apart from very close friends uh, that, that I see every week, um, the number one person I would have to say is Dallas Willard. Um, he uh, was my dissertation supervisor. Uh, to be honest with you, he and his wife, Jane, adopted my wife and me almost as a son and daughter. And I, I just was close to him and loved him. And uh, He was a profound thinker and human being. And uh, uh, besides that, um, uh, uh, Richard Swinburne's writings have had a tremendous influence on me, as have... Uh, Roderick Chisholm's, the late Roderick Chisholm's writings. He was uh, a wonderful philosopher. But but then I'd also have to say my my good friend William Lane Craig. We we've been kind of co-laborers for you know Lord knows how long now. You know, 25, 30 years, and we've known each other, written things together. Uh, we stay in touch and. Um, uh, I just, I've learned so much from Bill, and uh, I'm just so grateful for his life and his influence on me uh, that uh, I, I would have to put him into that group. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Uh, those names have all been very meaningful and inspirational for me as well. Um, I actually first came to know your work after Dallas Willards, and I'm very grateful for both of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so regarding maybe some of your your own individual works or achievements, is there anything you think that has borne particularly rich fruit that you're proud of, or maybe not proud of in a positive sense, but in, that has been um, rewarding? Thanks. Um, I'm not quite sure I understand, uh, Mark, what you're asking. Would you just say it again? Yeah, sure. Uh, are there any particular works or achievements that you're particularly proud of or you think that have borne rich fruit for maybe your community or church or anything? Yeah. Well, uh, I think 
I think I have a gift of teaching and speaking. And so uh, I think I have a number of lectures on YouTube and elsewhere. I've never listened to any of them, uh, but uh, the people tell me they're on there. And, and if it, I get emails that they've helped people. So I think, I think I must have some sort of a gift there. And I'm, I'm sure grateful for it. But uh, I, I, that's one thing I'm really proud of. I would have to say at the popular level, um, my, my book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, and um, my recent book, Finding Quiet, have just, they have just disproportionately helped people in their lives. And it's, I, I was shocked. <laughs> uh, and so I'm just very grateful for that. I think at the scholarly level, uh, I, you know, I've, I've published, oh, somewhere in the 90s, uh, referee journal articles. And um, I think uh, most, a lot of people don't know of me in that way. Uh, and so I, I, I've maintained a presence in the academic world uh, through academic journals, uh, peer-reviewed journals. Uh, in terms of, of a book uh, or books, I think the, the book I edited called The Blackwell Companion uh, to uh, Substance Dualism and The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology are, are both books that have had a real impact. and. Uh, and then at a scholarly level, I did write a book with Rutledge uh, years ago called Consciousness and the Existence of God, because I have, uh, I think I've been uh, fairly well known, if I may say so, for uh, developing and restoring that argument that uh, trying to explain the origin of consciousness, given that it's uh, irreducibly non-physical, uh, is pretty tough if you start within the beginning with the particles. Uh, but if you have in the beginning was a logos, then your fundamental entity and your worldview is already minded, is already a conscious being. So uh, you don't have to explain the origin of consciousness because it's, it's fundamental and basic. You explain other things in light of it, but it doesn't itself need further explanation. But for the person who starts with matter, uh, as it is depicted in physics and chemistry, uh, setting aside some of the craziness in quantum physics, uh, who knows how to interpret that, but uh, it, you, you, you get this brute stuff, and it's pretty tough to figure out by just rearranging it according to physical laws how you're going to get anything but rearranged stuff. I mean, I don't know how you're going to get feelings of pain and thoughts that pee or desires that cue uh, popping into existence ex nihilo out of rearranged matter. So, sorry, I'm getting, getting into the argument, but uh, I think that has been something that's really been of interest to me. By the way, there is a publisher uh, uh, in the UK, SCM Press, which is a well-known, I think, publisher in theology. And I did do a, a series uh, 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 that uh, was co-published by a, a center at the University of uh, Durham, I believe it was, and SCM called uh, the Recalcitrant Imago Dei. 
uh, human persons and the failure of naturalism, where I try to lay out there are a lot of things about us that make sense if we came from God, but simply can't be explained given a naturalist view of the world. So those would be some things that maybe people don't know about me, and uh, maybe that's helpful. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffy. I can say that I agree with what you said. I think you're a marvelous teacher, and I like even in your books, I think this comes across how you will do the vocab list at the end of the chapters and little analogies and metaphors that I think uh, brings the points across really well. Also, um, I doubly appreciate it as a teacher myself, even though I teach younger children, it yes. kind of makes me think about the art of teaching uh, and reflect on that too. So thanks for setting a good example there. Oh, you're welcome. I, um, I think for me, some of the key questions addressed by your work include uh, the value and nature of the human person, the perilous assumptions of scientism and secularism, and on the more positive side, the positives of the Christian disciplines that we see also in Dallas Willard. Um, so if we can look at a few of your works now, just to go through some of those themes. Um, the first one, the scale in the secular city, Advance of Christianity, that I found, can you tell us um, why you felt moved to write this early book? And are the challenges from secularism much different now than they were at that time? Yeah, good questions, both of them. Um, I had just finished my PhD, and uh, uh, after getting my dissertation published, I, uh, I realized that in the, uh, what I would just consider the general mere Christianity audience, um, there were some good popular level uh, apologetic books and uh, defenses of the faith, and there were some high-level scholarly works that were doing the same thing, but there was a huge gap in the middle that wasn't being filled. And what I wanted to do, and I felt God moved me to do, was to raise the bar for people that were wanted, interested in apologetics but did not have a chance to go to graduate school or anything like that. And so... I wanted to produce a book that was a stretch and was a, was a little bit of what is above what my brothers and sisters around, you know, the world were, were reading that would be challenging and a little bit above, above them, but it would accomplish a couple of things. First, I think it would encourage them that a much more rigorous case could be made than the ones perhaps they'd been exposed to, though they were good too. I think secondly, it raised the bar. I, w I wanted to raise the bar so that others would follow along and would sort of kick their game up and begin to produce more and more rigorous works. Uh, uh, and the book was also the sort of thing that was reviewed by in some scholarly journals favorably. And so I think it was kind of at the lower end of, of kind of what you might call the scholarly level and maybe just a bit out of reach, uh, but that was what I tried to do, and it's tough to know exactly, you know, you're going to leave somebody out, so uh, that was why I wrote that book, 
And um, I, I, what about the challenges? Uh, well, believe it or not, I think that uh, a lot of the challenges have remained the same in light of the ongoing dominance of scientific naturalism in shaping Western culture. So, and uh, it will, it is beginning to trickle into India and China and other cultures, and it will eventually, the more they come to our universities and get educated. Uh, but, but one thing that has really surprised me uh, has been uh, the, the proliferation of kind of postmodern relativism, critical theory, uh, race theory, uh, Let's just lump all that together. Constructivist view of the world. I just never thought that that would get, you know, get too widely embraced, and it did. And uh, so, uh, when I if I speak on a college campus today, you know, and I, I can't start by defending the existence of God, I've got to start by just saying a word about truth. <laughs> and uh, it's just it it, it it's it's an unusual situation. By the way, one more thing, Mark, and I, if my answers are too long here, you just tell me. But um, uh, I think the outbreak of miracles that have happened worldwide from credible mission reports uh, and the unbelievable explosion of uh, highly documented near-death experiences that really placed them beyond any reasonable doubt to a person who is open, is open to looking at the evidence. I think that's helped us tremendously. And uh, it's pretty tough to just, you know, write Ichabod over all that and say it's just a, you know, it's some guy in the, out in the mountains who doesn't have an education, but he's got an old mimeograph machine and he's just cranking out miracle stories, you know. I mean, uh, that's not what's going on here. So those are very, very encouraging uh, to see that happening. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffy. So you um, touched upon it there. Your next, your another book that you wrote, Christianity and the Nature of Science, a philosophical examination. Um, so with those challenges in mind, then how should Christians understand the nature of science and the role of philosophy, particularly in, in the Christian life? Yes. Well, there is a tremendous amount of confusion on the part of culture, uh, Western culture, about science. And the truth is, there really is no such thing. Um, there are a whole bunch of sciences, uh, and uh, scientists in those radically different areas use different methodology. Uh, I, I mean, a, an archaeologist does something different than a nuclear chemist or uh, a paleontologist. So there, I mean, there is no such thing as the scientific method. There's a family of methodologies uh, that are also used outside of science. Uh, and uh, uh, historians and others use those. And so a lot of people don't realize that um, that's true, uh, that, there, that there, there is no scientific method. 
they're a family of them. Uh, and the second thing I would say is that um, I think people need to know that there are some things that we know better outside of science than anything we know in science. Uh, a lot of people think that science is the best way to know reality. And, you know, religion and that sort of thing is, uh, is kind of just blind faith. But the fact of the matter is that there are all kinds of things that we know with greater certainty than anything we know in science. And also the assumptions that science is built on have all been challenged in the last 20 years in different, by different scholars. And if those assumptions are not true, then we, what we have to do is we have to view science as providing us uh, theories that are useful fictions uh, that are practically helpful in generating technology and making predictions, but that has nothing to do with whether they're true or not. Uh, and so uh, if, you, if you're gonna claim that scientific entities are real, and uh, there really are electrons, for example, and that uh, scientific theories are progressively getting closer and closer to what the world is like over time, then you have to defend those assumptions. But those assumptions are not the things science can even formulate. Like, what is, ex what is truth and how do we know there is such a thing? What is it to know something? I mean, how are you gonna show that in a chem lab? Uh, uh, and, and things of that sort. So uh, it's actually philosophy that does the job of justifying the assumptions of science. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, Mark, I think what I would have to say is that philosophy is uh, probably the most important tool, uh, handmade as it used to be called, to serve uh, the church and Christianity. And it deals with with the life's most important questions in a, in a, in a very rigorous way. And uh, when you're doing other fields, you kind of feel like there's this conversation deep down there somewhere that you're not having. But when you do philosophy, you realize that you're, you're down at the bottom. <laughs> Any deeper conversation will just be more philosophy. So I urge my brothers and sisters who are watching to, you know, pick up a, uh, maybe an intro text if they don't know anything about it or get something to read in this area. You know, C.S. Lewis has got some, some good person to start mere Christianity or something like that. And uh, just, just get their feet wet a little bit in this field. Marvelous. Thank you, Jeffy. Um, so I have an intuition, at least, that a lot of my secularist friends are more motivated by the moral issues done, the scientific for so-called issues, and kind of use science as an excuse to um, justify their, their already underlying moral assumptions. So you've written a book, um, The Life and Death Debate, Moral Issues Over Time. I just wanted to know what were some of the key moral issues that spoke to your own heart and needed to be addressed then? And um, I suppose this can tie in with our questions about how we interact with secularists. Um, why are those moral issues so important then? Yes. Um, when I, by the way, I, I share your intuitions. <laughs> uh, 
the famous American philosopher of the last several decades, Thomas Nagel, uh, who is a giant of a philosopher, was honest enough to, in a book he, he wrote called The Last Word, Defending Reason, uh, he, he was honest enough to say um, that really deep down he had a fear of God. And he said, I'm not, I'm not afraid of, I don't, doesn't mean I'm afraid of religious people. What I'm afraid of is that there might be a God and I don't want there to be. He says, I don't want there to be a cosmic authority telling me how I have to live. And uh, he says, I think this is probably what causes so many of my colleagues to embrace and use the theory of evolution far more widely than it's justified in using. And um, so I think that, and I could go on, but your, your intuitions are spot on. And what I would say would be that that doesn't let us off the hook from having to answer questions and give objectively rational defenses of what we believe, if for no other reason, then it's biblical and Christians need it. <laughs> uh, but um, I do think what it can do in some cases with unbelievers is to cause them to wake up and to say, you know, that guy was as smart as I was and some of my statements weren't all that good. Uh, and perhaps they'll have to go back and be, be more honest. But, but I do agree with you. Now, um, the moral issues that we address in that book are, are, are basically things like abortion, um, uh, euthanasia, infanticide, uh, capital punishment, uh, war, uh, and uh, a, a handful of other uh, uh, bioethical kinds of issues. And uh, I guess what I would say is two things that may be of interest to those watching us. And the first one is that I think that the greatest evil of our time is abortion. Uh, I am not a one trick pony. Uh, I think that there are all kinds of issues besides that that are important, but I cannot, I cannot clear my mind of the fact that this is the this is the slaughter of unprotected human persons and they they have no one but us to protect them and it's so often done for the sake of convenience and so i am both of my daughters married daughters are pro-life activists uh and they're really engaged in that movement and uh i'm just so proud of them uh but uh so that's one thing I'd want to say. Here's the other thing I would I would want to say to people. I think that it is almost always the case that the ethical issue. I'm speaking now uh, intellectually and not, you know, I want to sin, so I'm gonna. But um, the, the the intellectual issue is almost not the ethical topic, but it's the underlying epistemology and metaphysics. Uh, let me clarify. I think epistemologically, people today have this idea that um, even if there are objective moral truths, we just don't, we're not able to know what they are because there's so much disagreement among people and it's kind of subjective and, uh, you know, compare that with, you know, chemistry where everybody seems to agree. 
And so they get this idea that if you can't prove it scientifically, which you can't, uh, an ethical claim, then you can't know it, or given the disagreements that perhaps moral assertions, even if they're true, where they probably aren't, but even if they are, who knows? And so, you know, live and let live and just do, do whatever you kind of want, basically. Well, I think we need more reflection on, uh, on knowing and how we know things. And in my book with Bill Craig, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, we address some of those topics that uh, would make them available uh, to people. I think the metaphysical issue is that if I am a collection of cells, and at the end of the day, all a fetus is, or all I am, or all an elderly person is, is just a material object, a brain and a nervous system, it's really hard to see how I would have a whole lot of value. Now, this is consistent with a Christian view of the body. Uh, the, because there are ways to say that the body is very valuable apart from the fact that it is a mere material object. Uh, and so I'm not saying matter is bad. I'm just saying that what makes my body valuable would be things like it's being ensouled. Uh, it's, it's being my body and belonging to me and so on. So I think that defending the reality of the soul and that human beings are irreducibly non-physical things uh it makes it makes the case for their dignity uh, a lot easier to make and so i would just say focus on uh, on uh, some of those underlying issues of what is a human person and i think that would uh, be important for for further ethical discussion Excellent. Thank you, JP. So um, are there any new ethical challenges that you think are particularly important? Um, what springs to my mind is probably the trans, transgender issue. And um, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share about that one or any similar? Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, a whole spate of related issues about sexuality, I would just put in that category. Uh, I think a lot of Christians are buying into the idea that, you know, homosexuality is, if it's monogamous and so on, it's perfectly normal, and uh, it, it isn't, and uh, transgenderism and, and all manner of things like uh, that are related to that cluster of issues, I think is very, very important. Um, uh, I will say something about this, but I, I have not kept up with, I, I, I kind of, it's a hobby to read some of that literature, but to be honest with you, it, I, I, God has called me to work in other areas, and so I give most of my time to that. I leave it to people like Scott Ray, my colleague, to keep up with the ethical issues. But um, I think it's important to consider the possibility, which I think is real, that Jesus was a virtue ethicist, not a deontological ethicist. Now, let me clarify. If you're a deontological ethicist, then your fundamental questions are these two. 
First, what are the correct moral rules that we are to obey? And secondly, what is the right thing for me to do in whatever circumstance I'm facing? And so the, the, the fundamental issue is duty, uh, duty for duty's sake, and uh, doing the right thing. Now, that, that matters, that matters, but uh, a virtue ethic is, a, is an approach that sketches a picture of what life could be like that is, human, that is characterized by human flourishing. So Aristotle uh, did this, Aquinas, Jesus, I believe, painted a picture of a flourishing human life in the kingdom. And he said, he told us who was well off. A person is well off that is uh, in God's kingdom and is related to him uh, in a, a proper way and living from the kingdom. Okay, so you paint a picture of, of the flourishing life, and then you paint a picture of what is a good person. What are the character traits that constitute virtuous character and what are vices? And how do I cultivate the former and uh, not the latter? And then duties become the, the, the rules and actions that would characterize the behavior and nature of a, of a virtuous individual. So how does that make a difference? Well, let me give you, tell you a story. Uh, I was on a, a secular talk radio show, and uh, the topic of homosexuality came up, and the host said, listen, why are you evangelicals so mad at, at, at homosexuals? Well, what, what's the deal with that? And I said, well, I don't, I'm not mad at homosexuals. Uh, I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, most of the friends in my church aren't mad about it. We're, we're worried and concerned. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, look. Suppose that all of my neighbors, uh, I, li I live about 30 minutes from the Pacific Ocean. Suppose my neighbors every Saturday morning took their cars down to the beach and drove them under the water for about 10 to 15 yards and then had them towed out and they went home. Now, um, I said, that would not be a good thing for them to do. Why? because that's not the way the car was made to flourish and function best. Now, suppose I knew that. What kind of a coward, what kind of a friend or neighbor would I be if I never took the time to tell my neighbors that they, that they were running a risk of destroying their cars? Now, they may not want to hear that because they really have fun going down there every Saturday, but I have to at least tell them the truth that this is, try to find another hobby. Well, same with this. The reason that God forbids homosexuality is not because it's a moral command, but it's because it doesn't comport with the way we were made by nature to function in Romans 1. What that means is that the people that are practicing alternative forms of sexuality will not have a, a, what I'm going to call a happy, a flourishing, uh, shalom-filled life over the long haul, though in the short term, it may be better than, than being lonely. Uh, and so the reason that, that we speak about this is that we're very, very concerned 
for our fellow human beings because they, they will, th this is not something that you can escape. It's just like being, you know, 100 pounds overweight. Uh, you can do it if you want to, but you won't escape the consequences. And so that's what the deal is. So I have found that tying our public discourse about issues into a concern for human well-being, as the virtue ethicist would do, uh, is, a good way, is a good way to go. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffrey. Um, so that speaks to a theme in your work, I think, of reintegrating the human person and bringing the mind, the, the soul, all back together again. Um, in your classic, Love Your God With All Your Mind, the role of reason and the like the soul, I think you do this. Can you explain um, perhaps why you think that book needs to be written and what makes it so distinct from other books out there? Yes, uh, I, I, the, the one that I believe that you're focusing on is, is a book called The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'll, just, I'll just focus on that one because that entire book is a defense of, of, uh, of two different claims. And the first one is that conscious, uh, consciousness is not physical. And so what I do is I, I, I clarify what consciousness is, the different kinds of consciousness, and then I give reasons for why uh, consciousness is not a physical state of any kind. There, it's purely spiritual and immaterial. The second claim is that I define what a soul is and um, a good definition that would both fit scripture and uh, the history of Western thought would be that a soul is an immaterial substance or you might just say thing that uh, possesses consciousness and animates the body or enlivens the body. And so what I do is I give uh, a set of arguments for, for how we know there really is such a thing as a soul and why I can't be my brain or my body. And um, then I try to lay out uh, kind of my view of the structure of the soul. I talk about how do we know what kind of a soul an animal has because animals do have souls uh, and uh, and I, I sort of tease that out in that book. So I think that if I were to recommend anything, I mean, there is a pretty good section on this in Philosophical Foundations, uh, especially the new, the new edition but, uh, that came out a couple of years ago. But I think that book, The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters, is my attempt to write for a general audience about, about these sorts of things. Um, I don't know if you, have you heard of the National Institute of Health? Mm -hmm. I have. It's, uh, it's in Bethesda, Maryland, on the East Coast in the United States. And I don't know, there are 30,000 people or so that work there. It's this massive facility with all kinds of research scientists and so on. Well, I was invited uh, to give a lecture there by a research biologist I'd never met, uh, but they had had uh, John Searle from Berkeley and uh, I think Patricia Churchland, uh, who are well-known physicalists or materialists. 
and they wanted a duelist uh, to come. And so I went there and I lectured for about an hour and 15 minutes to a group of about 130 neuroscientists, research biologists, and so on, and then had a 45-minute Q&A. It was a long time, but I will tell you that the stuff in that book that I'm telling you about stood up uh, because I basically argued that when it comes to the nature of consciousness and its possessor, neuroscience has nothing to say about it. Nothing. What neuroscience can do is help us tremendously in understanding the causal relationships between mental functioning and brain functioning and how they cause things to happen to one another and how they depend on one another. So if something happens to your brain, you can't have memories or that sort of thing. And I said, that's great. But they have nothing to say about uh, whether consciousness is nothing but a physical state of the brain or it's not physical. Well, I got no pushback on that. And, and I laid out my arguments. And what it proved to me, Mark, was that really it really is true that the philosophical issues are more fundamental than the scientific ones. Mm -hmm. just, it just showed me once again. And that was a, not a friendly audience, I can tell you that. Excellent. So whenever I read that book, uh, I was impressed by, I think, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think you suggested something along the lines, and you can rephrase this, that the, they would have to show that the brain and the mind are identical. Yes. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Okay, so that's a huge claim. Well, yeah. We would need a lot of burden of proof, I guess. Well, it's self-evidently false. I mean, uh, uh, if you're going to show, let's just let's just kind of stick with consciousness for a minute. Uh, there, there are at least five states of consciousness. There are sensations, like a ta uh, the experience of a taste of a lemon or uh, seeing the color red or a pain. Uh, there are thoughts. There are beliefs. Uh, you can have thoughts you don't believe, and you have beliefs you're not thinking about right now. Uh, there are desires uh, for ice cream or what have you, and then there are exercises of, of will or volitional freedom and power. Now, <clears throat> the problem is that there are things true of consciousness that aren't true of anything physical, including the brain, and conversely. So as a result, they can't be the same thing. So for example, there, uh, there is a what it is like to a conscious state, and that's what makes it the state it is. For example, there's a what it's like to be in pain. That's different than the what it's like to taste strawberry ice cream. And we know the difference by just paying attention to the uh, texture of the two experiences. But there is no what it's like to be a C-fiber firing. Uh, there is no such thing as a what it's like to being a neuron or being an electron. You will search in vain in a physics, chemistry, biology, or neuroscience text when they're describing cells and physical objects for any, any attribute of there being a what it's like being ascribed to a piece of matter, including a brain state. Uh, another thing is uh, some, some conscious states can be true or false, but brain states can't be true or false. Some conscious thing, things or states are about objects, like my sensation is of the lamp. My thought is about London. 
but no brain state is about anything. It just sits there. It just a, it sits there and causes things. So what the, what I'm trying to say is that if you pay careful attention, uh, it's obvious that there are things true of conscious states that aren't true of brain states, and so they just cannot be the same thing, though they can be very very deeply functionally intertwined and connected with one another. Praise the Lord, you know, I'm glad for that. But that's far different than, as you said, identifying the two. Excellent, thank you for clarifying. And um, so back to that book with William Lee and Craig, then Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. I think this is a, a wonderful reference guide and I think every home should have, every Christian home should have it or every home in general should have it. Um, <laughs> Why is, do you think, is William Lee and Craig so important for Christians now and um, this book in particular? Why is he so important for what? Why is a William Lee and Craig so important for Christians generally and why yes. is this book so important? Because um, I think from my perspective, since I teach in primary schools and prep schools, um, yes. I would love to do what you're doing at that higher level with these younger ones and I love that you're doing that by the way I love it thank you it's so important uh, William Wilberforce said that we've got to train our kids from the earliest age the reasons why we hold what we do we have to make them think about their faith so anyway sorry go ahead but I'm glad you're doing that thank you Jeffy so um yeah I was wondering do you have any tips maybe to bring those foundational principles and arguments maybe to those age groups that I work with and yes uh, uh, so three things uh, first William Lane Craig Bill uh, was in and when he was in um, uh, middle school or in high school he was a part of the debate club and then he went to college and he was a part of the debate club so he learned how to debate when he was uh, just just barely off his mother's knee. And so he is a spectacular debater. He is just the best in, in the world that we have as a Christian. He's so skilled at the art of debate. But more than that, he is, uh, he's just a genius. Uh, he, he speaks you know, three or four languages. He, he has two doctorates, one uh, from the University of Birmingham and one in, in Germany under, uh, I believe it was Pannenberg. And um, he has just done his homework. So he's so important because he's, he's been a faithful uh, acceptor of the full authority of the scriptures. He's an evangelist. He loves to share his faith. He, he's got a tender heart toward the Lord. And yet, his, he is a first-class intellectual. And I guess that just shows that you can be that, but still be madly in love with Jesus and believe the scriptures, as he does. He's a good person to, uh, to imitate and at least know he's out there. Um, the reason that the book is so important, Philosophical Foundations, is that we wanted to write now, this is going to sound terrible, okay, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but we kind of wanted to write a definitive treatment of uh, worldview, Christian worldview thinking in the field of philosophy that would last for, a, for decades. And uh, 
we and so the things you know a hernia inducing 700 pages or whatever it is you know uh and so uh i think that the book is i mean I, it's not easy i agree with that but it wasn't intended to be but i think if you're looking for a reference work on a, on a whole range of subjects there are chapters that address those topics and you're going to have to use a pad and paper to read it, but it's it's a good resource. Uh, now, boiling this stuff down, um, uh, there are. Let me give you two names. Uh, these are actually both former students of mine, and they're one of them is a colleague on the faculty. But one of them is his name is Sean McDowell, S E A N, uh, Josh McDowell's son, M C. M-A-C-D-O-W-E-L-L, -L, I think. And the other is Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Kunkel, K-U-N-K-L-E. Now, these guys have written a whole spate of solid books for teenagers and for middle school people. I know Lee Strobel also wrote a book on the case for Christ for high schoolers or whatever. They've done an apologetic study Bible for younger kids. Now, I don't know uh, 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 that they've done anything on the lower grades, but that takes apologetics. Those, they're, Google those guys, you go on Amazon, and, and I tell you, I trust their works. They're really well done, and they, they communicate. Now, uh, apart from that, um, there is a ministry in Colorado Springs, Colorado, called Summit Ministries. And I know that they produce curricula that is apologetic oriented um, for younger homeschooling uh, kids. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of something for third and fourth grade, if you could email them or contact them, you might be able to get a hold of something for, for kids that are younger. <clears throat> so that's the best advice I think I could give you. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so you've also written a book yourself, Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult. Yes. Questions. Um, I was just wondering, for those who aren't maybe as philosophically inclined, how do we right. make those deep questions live for people so that um, they actually start to take them seriously? Do you have any advice in that respect? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, I want to give people hope that there are ways to dip your feet in this water that will be meaningful and helpful without you having to be overly committed to it. We're not all called to be committed to this as a sort of a main part of who I am. But everybody could learn a little bit more. And, um, and so uh, there are YouTube lectures, uh, um, there are some really good books. Uh, we are coming out uh, probably next fall with an updated and revised edition of that book, Philosophy Made Slightly Less Difficult. Uh, there is, uh, Paul Gould, G-O-U-L-D, uh, wrote a book that's kind of an intro to philosophy from a, from a kind of a practical Christian perspective. I forget the title, but that would be on Amazon. And uh, I would be sure to get a book like that 
and just just read one book. Um, there's another one by Mark Foreman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N, and a second author. They're coming out with a revised version of sort of an undergrad little text in philosophy that I will tell you is very easy to read. Uh, it's conversational. It, it, is, it says, this is why this matters. So uh, Mark Foreman's uh, book or Paul Gould or Philosophy, you can get a book like that. Or um, I think Mars Hill Audio uh, has a tape series that, uh, uh, that you can listen to in your car that are about different apologetic themes. And you probably know of some yourself. I would say listening to podcasts like this, making it a habit, because you pick stuff up. Uh, and, you know, it's a good use of your time. So avail yourself of, of what is now uh, uh, offered by all of us. And don't feel like you have to learn, become a PhD in this for it to be worth your time. Now, if a person just isn't motivated, I think, you know, you can lead a horse to water and you can't make it drink, but you can feed it salt. And I think what you have to do is feed people salt. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're in a Sunday school class or some sort of a, a home group or a class of some kind, you can make them feel inadequate. <laughs> so what you can do is uh, you can raise an issue and say, okay, you're, you, you know, your, your uh, 15 year old son comes up to you and says, dad, this is what I heard with my friends. What to say about this? What do I tell them? Well, you know, dad or mom doesn't know they better start scrambling. Um, and, or get a little clip out of a book and quote it or, a little a clip from the newspaper, or, or you know what I'm talking about, that raises a problem that people are going to go, oh, gee, I never thought of that. And then you say, well, lesson one, you know. So it, if exposing to need can make a person motivated, and that's what I will do. Thank you very much. That's great advice. Um, so based on what you are saying earlier on, you clearly offer a different ethic, a virtue ethic, which is different from what we're more used to. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the Kingdom Triangle and the Christian anthropology versus the more secular anthropology. Can you describe how ours is different and why this is so essential? Yes. Um, a, a Christian anthropology um, uh, it has a, a set of features that are extremely important and are not easily offered by other views of the world. The first one is that, as I've said already, we are, we are embodied souls. Uh, and uh, we are of such a nature that we are capable of existing without our bodies when we die. Uh, of, under God's sustaining power. And so um, a, a, an alternative view of the world could believe that there is such a thing as a soul, but the more atheistic ones uh, have trouble justifying that claim. It's, you know, it's, uh, Islam believes that we have a soul. 
So there would be a, a similarity there. Uh, I think the second thing is that um, Christianity uh, and Judaism are uh, unique in uh, being the uh, uh, being the initial launchers of the idea that we all are equal value because we're made in God's image. Now, there you can say, well, what does it mean to be made in God's image? And what that basically means is that there are a number of powers that we have or aspects of our being that are actually like God himself, only in a very limited way. And so we have uh, powers of moral awareness. We have uh, powers of volitional responsible choice. We are capable of contemplating abstract ideas like uh, what kind of a thing is justice um, um, and, and, uh, and on it goes. And even, even uh, people that are born in some kind of a way in a deformed state, uh, they still, uh, they, so they are never able to use those powers they still have the potential for them, except that potential, let's just say for, for moral awareness, you have a little child that's born and due to, due to brain defects, they'll never be able to be more than just, you know, like a four-year-old. Well, they'll never come to the point of being able to be aware of moral right and wrong. Uh, and to be able to exercise responsible moral choices. But they still have, uh, as a part of the very nature of their souls, the potential to develop that. It's just that that potential is blocked because of a, some sort of a privation or defect, but they still have it. Now, now here, here's what's important about this part of Christian anthropology. This gives us a reason to believe that we all ha have equal value simply as being human beings and that we have greater value than animals. Now, um, Peter Singer uh, is a, an ethicist at Princeton and is just out of his mind. I, I, the guy is just way out there in what he believes. He's promoting sex with animals now as being perfectly normal. And I, you know, the guy's, you know, everything I believe in morality, he doesn't believe, and conversely. But he wrote a book years ago on, on infanticide, letting newborns die for various reasons. And he made the point in this book that the only way that you can justify the idea that human beings have high intrinsic value and in fact equal value is, is by appealing to the doctrine of the image of God, which we all know is false because theism is not true. Well, but he was right. And um, uh, the, an, uh, the, the leading legal philosopher in America in the 20th century was Joel Feinberg. Uh, himself an atheist. He wrote a little book called Philosophy of Law, and he says in there that the idea of equal human rights makes absolutely no sense. The only way it could make sense is if you believe in something that let's just call preciousness, 
uh, and that we all have this preciousness attribute in common. He said that kind of an attribute is going to make an atheist kind of queasy because, you know, it, it's hard to know where such a, there'd be room for such a thing in a material universe. So he was acknowledged, and he actually says that the Judeo-Christian image of God doctrine makes perfect sense out of equal and intrinsic human rights. But look, Mark, if we're, if we're not made in God's image, we don't have anything in common that's equal. They're smart, dumb, ugly, good-looking, athletic, non-athletic, socially useless, mm -hmm. socially useful people. And you can say, well, we're all homo sapiens. Yeah, but if there's no God, being a homo sapien is just being a biological glob of cells with a certain DNA structure. That's all it is. So you can't get equal human rights except for a, a, a biblical anthropology. And that's why uh, that kind of a doctrine has flourished in the structures of Europe and America until secularization began to take place. But that, those are something. We, we, we're responsible moral agents. Uh, we're not determined by our environment and our, and our brain structure. Influenced, yes. So those would be some things, I would say, about what makes our anthropology so commonsensical. Thank you for that, JP. So um, next, if you don't mind, could we discuss just briefly consciousness in your book, Consciousness and the Existence of God? So um, I was wondering, what are some of the key questions about consciousness for you and how do they marry with God's existence? And um, for me, I find it particularly interesting because my friends who, whenever I press them on their secular humanism, will become transhumanists all of a sudden. And I think it's their get out of jail free card or something. I was wondering what do you think about the challenge maybe posed by transhumanism? Um, well, mistaken notions of consciousness there. Well, yeah, uh, good, good. Um, consciousness is what you're aware of when you introspect. So when you, when you close your eyes and you introspect, you bump up against a world of thoughts, feelings, emotions, desires, beliefs, and so on. Um, now, for every conscious state C is a what it is like to be in C. So, for the conscious state pain, there is a unique what it is like to be in pain. A unique what it is like to be thinking about the presidential election. That's different than the what it is like to be thinking about um, uh, mathematics. Now, if there weren't a unique what it is like, then we would not be able to discern the difference among our own thoughts by just paying attention to them. But you know as well as I do that I can, if you ask me what I'm thinking, I stop, all I have to do is pay attention to what my thought is, and I can tell you. Well, if there must be something about that thought that is introspectively discernible. Otherwise, first-person reports of one's own consciousness become unintelligible. So the point is that consciousness is irreducibly sentient, uh, um, awake. There is a what it is like to it. Uh, and and uh, so uh, artificial intelligence and computers 
are computing machines. They're not conscious machines. They're syntactical engines, not semantic engines. That means that if you put in a computer how to, uh, an algorithm that it will run, it can check your spelling and grammar. So, uh, but it can't interpret the meaning of a sentence because they, computers don't have semantic meanings in them like we do. So transhumanism, to the degree that it's connected with advances in artificial intelligence and so on, is, is just is ridiculous from the get-go. And the reason it is, is because it's built on a category fallacy. A category fallacy is the fallacy of confusing one thing with another, or like saying, how many inches long is the smell of a rose? Well, something's going wrong with the question. Well, um, artificial intelligence machines are just that. They're artificial. They imitate intelligence by running electricity through on and off switches. That's all the darn things are. They don't think, they don't, they don't literally check your spelling. They don't, when you put two plus two in it and it spits a four out on the screen, it doesn't literally add. And so you will not get uh, some sort of an advanced developed sort of an entity by, by merely fooling around with uh, artificial intelligence or perhaps even with the brain. Uh, it, it gets too involved to talk about that. But I think it's, they've got to address this problem of consciousness. And, uh, and it's very different than what they're talking about in artificial intelligence research. Thank you. So um, my friend actually asked me to, to ask you about um, Wittgenstein and the Turing test as the means by which we recognize consciousness. Uh, does that fall within that fallacy um, where he thinks that the limits of our language are the limits of our world? Mm -hmm. Is that well, the, the, yeah. Um, I, I don't think Wittgenstein um, was is the right person here. I think that Alan Turing, of course, was the person that generated the Turing test. And um, it is allegedly a test for deciding whether or not another object is conscious. And so the Turing test is that if another object is input-output isomorphic with a real conscious subject, then that other conscious thing, other entity is conscious. Now, by isomorphic, I mean this. If you input me, to me, how are you doing today? And I output, I'm doing fine. Then if you do the same to some box or machine where you input how are you doing today? And it outputs, I'm doing fine. Then it is isomorphic to me, meaning there is a correspondence between my inputs and outputs and a parallel input output with that. Then there's no behavioral input output difference between the two of us. 
you get it? So if I'm conscious, it's conscious. Uh, and, and so uh, the Turing the test says that um, if I put a question to an object and in a finite number of steps, I get an answer, then the object is conscious because it's answering questions. Now, this is so bogus. It, it, it's, and here's, the, here's the problem with it, and I'll show you uh, what I think was the knockdown dragon argument against it. This works only in the third person case. In other words, if I want to know whether you're conscious, I can't get inside and have private access to your own mental states. So I do, in fact, have to see if your behavioral outputs are sort of like mine. If I get stuck with a pin and I grimace and shout ouch, I'm aware that in between those, by my first person introspection, I feel pain. In your case, I can't first person introspect your pain. So I see you get stuck with a pin and you do something pretty similar to what I do and I figure we're a lot alike and so you're probably having pain between those two states. That's a reasonable argument. But um, the, 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 the third person knowledge is based on a prior knowledge of the first person case. I start by knowing what kind of conscious states I possess by just private access. I have access to my states that nobody else does. And then I use that uh, as an inference to the best explanation of other organisms that are like me. And I, if I want to apply the Turing test, as long as I see it as an epistemological guide for judging whether something's conscious, rather than being an ontological position that constitutes that consciousness is nothing more or less than an output given an input, I'm okay. You understand the difference. Mm -hmm. Now, John Searle's Chinese room argument, I think, pretty much did it, well, in my opinion, did an end to the Turing test. And, and, it, and it went as follows. Searle says, suppose you come across a room and it has two windows in it. You can't get inside the room. The door is locked. You don't know what's in there. But above one window is questions. And above another window is answers. And so you, and it's in Chinese. And so you take a sheet of paper with a Chinese question on it, written in Chinese, and you stick it in the window. And a few minutes later, a, another piece of paper comes out the other window with a written in Chinese, an answer to the question. Unknown to you, Inside the room is a person who doesn't know a lick of Chinese, but he's got two massive almanacs. And so the first one is a question almanac and the other is an answer almanac. So when he gets the question, he looks at the shapes of the scribbles and he finds in that massive, you know, 5,000 volume book where that exact set of scribble shapes are. And so he doesn't know the meaning of it, but he can recognize the shapes of the writings. So he finds that uh, scribbling. It says, look at page 97 of the answer book. He goes to page 97, column five, and lo and behold, there's another set of scribbles. 
So he writes those scribbles on it and sticks it out the window. Now, the question is, this Chinese room satisfies the Turing test for consciousness. But the problem is, it is not conscious in the sense that it doesn't understand or grasp the semantic meaning of Chinese. There's a guy in there that's conscious doing the books. If they could do a robot, it'd work. Uh, but the point is that there is no conscious semantic grasping. Contrast that with a person who understands the language, where you ask him a question, he understands the meaning behind it, and he gives you the meaning behind a verbalization of the answer. That's consciousness. The Chinese room, while it satisfies the Turing test, is still not conscious. So the Turing test is not a sufficient condition for judging real consciousness. Marvelous. Thank you very much for that, JP. Most one more. Let's do one more. Sure. And um, so we could look at, oh, I think uh, this would be a good one. Uh, you mentioned it at the start. I read it recently. It's one of my favorite books of yours. I loved it. Finding Quiet, um, my story of overcoming anxiety and the practices that brought me peace. So um, I was wondering why has anxiety become such an acute problem for so many today? And um, can you tell us perhaps about some of your struggles and the practices that did bring you peace in the end? Yes. Um, well, I was, I was born, like I said, with a genetic predisposition towards anxiety on my mom's side of the family. Doesn't mean I had to get anxious, but I was predisposed. It was easier for me. Uh, I was raised in a family where I observed and learned that the world was unsafe and I learned how to be anxious because anxiety is not entirely, but largely a learned behavior that you can unlearn. And so uh, I had in 2003, a nervous breakdown and I went on medications and got into counseling and began to do some practices. It happened to me again one other time in 2003, 10 years later, uh, 2013 rather. And uh, so I decided that I was going to, this wasn't going to happen to me again, God willing. So I really began to dive in and I read everything I could get my hands on. And I boiled down what I learned to a set of practices that are put into the, in, in the book Finding Quiet. And um, all I can say is that the main thing I would like to get across to our viewers right now is that all, what, what is crucial to all of getting rid of depression and anxiety, besides medication and counseling if it's needed, is habit formation. For example, we, are in, uh, we can be in the habit of very negative self-talk. You know, what if? What if this happens? Oh my gosh, that's going to be an absolute disaster. And we, we're not even aware of doing it anymore, but we wake up normal and by noon we're just in a nervous, we're nervous wrecks because we've been unconsciously talking to ourselves. And so you have to learn techniques that will help you with the Spirit's guidance, become more aware of your self-talk and replace it by alternative ways of speaking that you don't believe at first, but if you stick with it, you'll begin to change your view. So I can't go into the practices. There, there, it would be take too much time, but I will say that in the book, I, I lay out what has helped me tremendously uh, in this particular area. Now, now the reason that people, that this is 
now epidemic. Uh, anxiety in the United States is past depression as the number one mental health problem with depression closely behind. And it hits a, a, roughly 40% of Americans in a significant way each year. This isn't just being worried about something. This is having a, a real problem with anxiety. There are three fundamental reasons that this is going on according to the literature. Uh, you'll find the third one especially interesting. Uh, the first one is the pace of life we live that creates continual stress and the advent of uh, technology and smartphones and so on, which are fine in their place, has added to our, our minds and our brains both being overworked and stressed. And so the high pace of life and the stress that is true today. Secondly, uh, the, the breakdown of community and the isolation and loneliness and indiv inordinate individualism of Western culture. A, a good individualism is healthy, but it's gone to the extreme, and so people don't know how to have deep, uh, mutually carrying relationships where you bear each other's burdens. The third reason is, is, believe it or not, and this comes from secular experts on this, the advent of moral relativism. And the argument is that it used to be that people took themselves to know quite rightly, they say, what the difference was between a virtuous person and a person that wasn't. What a, what a good father looked like, or a healthy family as opposed to a dysfunction. Um, what it meant to be wise and a, and a good, well today people don't think that there's one size fits all for any of that. It's whatever feels right to you. Well, that leads to chaos and it undermines people's hope that there is any solution to the way they're living. Because there is no right answer, right? Correct? I mean, uh, if moral relativism is true, mm -hmm. and thus there just is no time-tested ancient wisdom that I could start internalizing that could get me out of this. So I'm stuck with whatever I feel at the moment I'm doing, and that is hopeless and it doesn't work. So those are the three kind of major reasons. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'd highly recommend that book to anybody struggling with anxiety or just in general. It's amazing. So um, just to close up then, are there any current or future works that you're working on now or you feel the passion to complete in the future? Well, I'm, I am working on uh, this book on uh, modern day miracles and uh, what I'm going to explain some and the validate eyewitness testimonies to them and uh, sort of answer some problems people have with miracles. And, uh, you know, I, I hope to have it submitted to a publisher this fall, so I'm not in a hurry, you know, but uh, it'll be out by God's grace in maybe 18 months, something like that. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. Thank God, I look forward to it. And um, just, are there any uh, good fruits that you hope to leave behind in your academic or personal life uh, in whenever you, pass on or anything um yes. well, well, actually, many years and may not be any time soon oh, it doesn't matter to me really <laughs> uh, uh academically i uh, have been doing a lot of work on technical 
work uh, in uh, the soul and physical alternatives to the soul. And I'm, I'd like to write a technical monograph on that down the road. Uh, and uh, that will be a, a, a two, three, four year project. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I, I just, I want to finish well and I want to die well. And, and I'd like to leave my wife and my children and grandchildren and my, my friends and, and so on uh, a, a, a kind of a model of somebody who's, who was joyful and, and, and loved the Lord until the end and, and uh, looked forward to the transition to the other side. And I think that's, that's just important to me. And I, that's something I want very much, and I'm working on that. So. Beautiful. Thank you very much, JP. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And oh, you too. With your, <laughs> your wisdom. So um, God bless you and have a lovely evening. Okay, my friend. And uh, is this mirror orthodoxy? Is that what this is? More orthodoxy, yeah. More? Okay. Well, I sure do appreciate you having me. And I hope your viewers will tell their friends about the show. It's so important that they see things like this. Thank you, JP. All right.